when my dad writes about when he was in Georgetown uh, back in the late 80s, um, he was looking out the window one day and he saw this great big oak tree and it was beautiful and next to the house he saw a tidy stack of cordwood Amen. and immediately the Lord began to contrast the difference between the living organism of the tree versus the fragmented stacked cordwood next to the house and he saw that as two different approaches to truth. And he said, we, we can approach truth where we have these tidy little doctrines that stand alone like pieces of cordwood. Or we can recognize that the Lord builds the house or that we can recognize the tree of life. And we can see how God puts these things together to form a living whole that enhances our relationship or is the medium for our relationship as opposed to the cordwood. And if we look at Christian so-called orthodoxy today, what we see is a piece of cordwood called soteriology and a piece of cordwood called eschatology and a piece of cordwood called pneumatology and all of these little different doctrines and schools of thought and theologies about God. But we don't really perceive all of this coming together in an integrated living whole. And just like the word analysis has as it, at its root the word lysis, which means to break apart, it's a fact that God is inviting man to a experiential relationship. He is not wanting to become a specimen for examination under man's microscope. And so there's a certain kind of analytical break apart knowledge that looks at the scriptures and deduces or slices and splices out these certain little tidy doctrines. But I thought of the, a, a similar analogy would be to think of truth as a body. And if we look at the body of truth, has it suffered a stroke, resulting that whole sections of scripture are paralyzed and inert? Ha, has it suffered a stroke, resulting in hampered movement and clumsy interaction, whether with the world or with each other? We want to see God take the pieces of cordwood off the woodpile and reassemble them as a living, sentient being. For Jesus said, I am the truth. We, we, want, we want to experience the presence of truth and the wisdom of truth and significantly the wholeness of truth. And it, only then are we going to know that this is something that God has, has given and revealed as opposed to another piece of cordwood. And my dad says, when he writes about this, he says, how tempting it is to pull a piece of cordwood off the pile and throw it in the fire and, oh, that was a powerful teaching. Have a little warmth and some sparks and some butterflies over a teaching. But what, what's far more meaningful is when we don't create cordwood out of truth, but instead begin to perceive it as a revelation of God, each one interconnecting and relying upon the next. That's, that's our prayer here today is to 
take cordwood, get rid of the cordwood and see it come together as a living tree that provides life. Amen. Amen. I think just touching on that same thing, what our hope is, is that, you know, we can agree on things and actually start to progress into something that, you know, is, uh, is a house in which you can live in. You know, it's a place in which you, you're not coming to the scriptures. You're not, let me just give you a real good example. This is, let's say your Bible reading this morning um, took you into the book of James. And so, you know, you're just going through the Bible in a year and it's telling you what you're supposed to read this morning. And so here you open it up and you say, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So let's say you read that passage and you go, whew, you know, I don't know, I feel this conviction from God that says that this is not about mental ascent, mm -hmm. that this is some type of, of call to an abiding relationship in which you're being fathered by God, that He is speaking things into your life, and there's this expectation of response. And all of a sudden, you're kind of deconstructing a lot of what you've heard, and you're reconstructing this, I don't know, I feel as though that this, this passage is telling me about some type of different way of thinking about this all together. And you're wrestling with that. And as you're wrestling, you go, okay, well, what's next on my Bible reading list? And it says Ephesians 2. And you go, oh, okay, you know, I'm just going to flip over there and we'll just see what I, uh, what I find there. And then you read, as you and you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with them, and seated us with them in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
And you think, what a terrible Bible reading day, you know. I've got James and I've got Paul that are sparring with one another about how one is made right with God, you know. And, and here I am. How am I supposed to deliberate between these two great giants of faith? I mean, and get the sense of it. Is James right that there is some type of works that we need to complete our faith or, or to demonstrate a faith that is saving? Is Paul right that those works, you know, are of no consequence and we've been saved completely by the grace of God? And I'll tell you what happens in that middle ground. It's this place of mental dissonance. And I love what was read earlier, by wisdom a house is built. You know, these two things, they have to come together by wisdom so that they can be shown how they do fit into the same house that God is building that we would live in. They have to be shown how they are putting tension on one another in right places and in the right way in order to have something that would be enduring and lasting. You know, and the temptation that we all have is to not wrestle through these things, but instead we take in a passage like Ephesians 2, and let's say that, you know, we, we feel paralyzed by the idea that God would be expecting a response from us. Let's say that we look at patterns of sin in our life and we think, wow, in, in some way is that going to disqualify me? And we turn on a YouTube sermon and someone's on Ephesians 2 and the pastor's talking about how God has done it all for you and you can't add anything to it in any ways. It's his finished work and you just believe and that's all that matters and that's going to carry you to the end of your life. Nothing you can say, nothing that you can do is going to disqualify you. You didn't do the work. He did the work. Therefore, the works don't matter that you do. And you sit there and re do this sigh of relief. And then the pastor takes a wrecking ball, you know, and he swings it and it just starts flattening all the other scriptures that would seem to be the wisdom that would come in a house that would be built. And so what I'm hoping is, is that the audience out there believes that knowing God and the one in whom he has sent is eternal life. Amen. Amen. That a knowing relationship that with God, this is eternal life, and that all of Scripture then is going to start talking about that knowing relationship. I hope that you guys are coming with me saying, wait, salvation is to know Him. Scripture speak too often about people that have just mentally assented. In fact, it just told us the demons mentally assent and believe, and they even shudder. And so clearly that's not sufficient. I know there's something more. But can you guys please help me understand? Can you guys construct a house that I can understand when I leave this podcast? I can look at a passage like Ephesians 2 and I can say, I see how that two by four would fit. Or at least I can pray now and ask God, show me how this fits within the construction that I just saw. And, and I think a lot of that is just going to come down to dead works and true works of faith. And I think everything on one side of the line of dead works is going to be one absent of relationship and one looking to satisfy legal demands. And I think everything on the other side of that line is going to be the works that are the outflow of a deep abiding relationship and trust in God. And so that's what we're going to try to jump into. And I'm going to hand over to Brother Ossie for a minute and see. I think we might, we might start talking about marriage sure. as a paradigm. One of, the, one of the most powerful things is to, to listen to the scriptures that speak of salvation in p positional or relational terms. Uh, how many times it says that we are saved in Him. We have no condemnation for those who are in Him. 
He says, uh, we are being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. But, he is, but by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. And it goes on and on, and I, I have several pages of these uh, scriptures that speak of salvation as a place and, and that speak of it relationally. And so then we ask, how do we, how do we get in Christ? And I think that the best analogy for our saving relationship with Christ is the marriage covenant. And I think this because Paul uses it repeatedly. He says, I have espoused you to one husband, Christ Jesus. And he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And so if we look at, if we look at marriage, it, it's, it can be very helpful because in marriage we see an exchange of assets and liabilities, which is really what we're hoping to see in any justification construct. So by justification construct, we simply mean that we come to God with debts. We come to God with guilt. And we need some means by which God would take our debts and our guilt and give us His attributes, His grace, His goodness, His kindness, His mercy, in short, His life, His eternal life. And all these scriptures indicate that salvation is relational and positional. We've already quoted John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so how do we enjoy this exchange of assets? In a, in a marriage covenant, if a, if, a, uh, if a young wife marries an older gentleman, let's say a 25-year-old marries a 40-year-old, um, and which was not uncommon in the case of, of the Jewish customs, uh, what is happening? She comes to him and she takes on his name and identity and she begins a process whereby she is transformed into the identity of her husband. And in the first case, let's imagine that this wife has a $50,000 school debt and let's imagine her husband has over a million dollars of cash in the bank. Well, the beautiful thing of marriage is that oneness creates an exchange. So when she comes and she becomes one with this man, Amen. he takes possession of her $50,000 debt and she takes possession of his, of his $1 million uh, bank account. So they jointly share their assets and liabilities. And that is the objective in, in any justification construct. We come to Jesus with debt. We come to Jesus with sin. And we need Him to take possession of that debt which He has already satisfied at Calvary. And then we need to take possession of his attributes. So we need to give him our ashes and he's going to give us his beauty. Isn't this what Isaiah was referring to? But the relational construct says that this begins 
with faith. This begins with trust. Just like a marriage starts when you first fall in love. And it also could be described as trust. So this saving relationship begins with faith and trust. And then it is ratified and secured or sealed through certain rites of covenant. By rites of covenant, I refer to baptism, which effectively buries the identity and autonomy of the old person and adopts or, or commits to adopt while adopting the identity and lordship of the new person. And then also the Holy Spirit, which is basically how the Lord downloads himself into someone who wasn't naturally born as his child. So only Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He's the only one who was natively uh, originated, born as a son of God. But good news for us, we can change our father from Adam to God because he can put his spirit inside of us by which we cry out, Abba, Father, by which we're enabled to make the same appeal to uh, the, the Lord, Yahweh God, that Jesus made, calling him Daddy Father. And so, so it's not that the marriage is entirely completed in the wedding, okay? The wedding doesn't end the marriage. And I'm not saying that there's any act that a human can participate in that concludes our saving relationship with God. When we're baptized, that's not the end of the matter. We can commit fraud. We can, we can have a marriage of convenience where many people do this in the United States. If they want citizenship in this country, they, they put forth a false marriage. They, they pretend to be in love with someone and they go through the legal rights. And, and so then they get the legal status changed, but they're not in love. Well, that's fraud. And that construct of salvation does not save anybody. It's just fraud. It's, it's professing to know God, but our actions denying him. It's saying, Lord, Lord, but him saying, I don't know you. I don't have this relationship with you. And so with, with the saving relationship with God, it begins by trust. As soon as that trust begins, the, expect, the expectation that we will continue in that allows God to credit to our account whatever is lacking in, 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 in our righteousness or in anything else, as long as we keep moving in that trust. And then we, we have to come to baptism, where we say, baptism is the vow that binds me to the relationship that saves me. Just like the wedding is the vow that binds you to the relationship you love and cherish with your spouse. We have to have that wedding. We can't be coming and going and having a relationship over here and then one over there. So in the same way, if we, if we take this relationship construct and we bring Paul's excoriation of works, as it were, um, he's not talking about works of righteousness. He's not talking about works inspired by the Spirit. In short, he's not talking about works of relationship through love. Amen. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Amen. So Paul is not talking about relationship works and he's not talking about love works. He's talking about works that correspond to a detachment of relationship. So let's, let's use the marriage analogy and I'll wrap it up here and we can move on. But in the marriage analogy, let's say a wife 
is initially in love with her husband, but over time grows apart, grows independent, starts to live by her own dictates, and someone comes along and says, you've lost your first love. This is New, New Testament language, right? So you, you, are, you are being taken captive again. Who has seduced you that you should not obey your husband? So these are some New Testament phrases. And, and let's say that that wife defends herself from the call to dependent relationship, which is how I would define faith. And she says, I'm still married to my husband. I do his laundry. I cook his meals. Um, I'm, I'm, I show up on time. And she starts throwing out all these kind of superficial works. And you're like, well, you can do his laundry and cook his meals and clean his house and not really be in right relationship with him. Amen. And so this is what the Jews were doing. They were taking the externals, which were to bring them to birth in Christ, that were bring, to bring them to that marriage altar. And they were saying, look, I still do the laundry. I still cook his meals. I still clean the house. And Paul's not saying, oh, no, no, guys, you don't have to do that or anything else. He's saying, that doesn't cut it anymore. That doesn't cut it anymore. And, and one of the, the key scriptures... I was hoping to spring this on my, on the devil's advocates later, but I'll spring it now. Um, but in Luke 17, 10, uh, well, the beginning verses of Luke 17, the disciples asked Jesus to increase their faith. He frames faith is, faith's increase in terms of going beyond duty. And yet modern day faith definitions frame faith in terms of exemption from all duty. Jesus says, when you have done your duty, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done only what was our duty to do. So faith is not doing your duty only, but it's coming into a place of love and trust and devotion that flows from the heart, that comes from a place of undefiled trust. And I, I, I feel like humility could be described as living as if we are not independent from God. And, and, and faith can be described as trusting Him, not just to do everything for us, but trusting Him to work in us, to will and do His good pleasure. Thank you. So everything that is said in the Pauline epistles against works would apply to a wife who was losing her relationship with her husband, but, but exempting herself because she was still do, going through the motions. He's not saying, oh no, that's too hard on you. Let's do something so much easier. Let's do grace and let's do faith. That's not it at all. He's saying, let's return to the faith of Abraham who went out not knowing where he was going, who had this trust, this relationship. Let's walk in the steps of faith. And so, this allows us to harmonize the scriptures that speak of works as flowing from love and flowing from faith. And it also allows us to take on board the warnings that speak of a salvation model that attempts to broker righteousness through minimal requirements, which is what I would call legalism. You almost think the verse that sums that up more than any other verse would be a Galatians 5, 6. Amen. You know, therefore circumcision or uncircumcision is of no account, but only faith working itself through love. Amen. This is the 
Therefore, a marriage certificate or not a marriage certificate does not prove the marriage, but faith working itself through love, you know, and that's kind of the same idea here. But I was just going to read something briefly out of yeah. false faith versus saving faith. Yeah, I'll just give a quote from Jonathan yes. Edwards before yes. you go into that. Please. Just in light of this. And this is from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. <clears throat> our being in him, in Jesus, is the ground of our being accepted. It is the union of the branches to the stock, which is the ground of their partaking of the sap and life of the stock. It is the relation of the wife to her husband that is the ground of her joint interest in the estate. What is real in the union between Christ and his people is the foundation of what is legal. What is real in the relationship is the foundation of what is legal. Amen. Amen. We've we got to stop looking at sin as a strictly legal problem. Right. And we've got to stop looking at, at the penalty of sin as God's wrath, yeah. strictly. Mm -hmm. And we've got to start looking at sin as a breach in relationship. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so whatever mends the relationship and enables us to approach the throne of grace with boldness, mm -hmm. this is justification mm -hmm. because it restores relationship. Mm -hmm. It sprinkles our hearts clean from an evil conscience mm -hmm. and allows us to have the faith yeah. to come near by a new and living way. Yeah. And there's so much more that could be said, but go ahead. Well, I was, I'm, what I'm thinking on is the same theme, and, and it's just this idea of what actually marks out dead works or makes something to be dead works. And we, we said it earlier, but I just want to say it again in the context of what we talked about just now. And that is when we are looking to um, solve a relationship problem through a few actions that make it so that we don't have to address relationship anymore. Amen. Yeah. Meaning when Paul is addressing dead works, he's addressing people who are trying to solve a relationship issue with just doing a few actions that get that taken care of so they can get on with their life and they can continue to live their life. And you see scriptures constantly, whether it's our Lord's um, exhortations, unless one loses his life, he will not find life. But it's always this, this call out instead to something that forfeits or abandons one's life altogether into a, uni a union of relationship, you know? And that's what's contrasted. I was reading this and I, I just... Uh, as, as I read this, I want you to think about the dead works and, and then think about mentally assenting to doctrine. Is that the same as what Paul is addressing as circumcision? Are that, is that one and the same? Meaning, is evangelicals today trying to mentally assent to a few facts of what Christ did to solve the relationship problem so that they can move on? And if so, would Paul be writing a letter like Ephesians 2 addressing not circumcision now, but in our day and age, people who are just going to a creed, that's making some statement prayer. of belief, and then saying, okay, now that's solved and I can move on. Mm, right. So here, here, this is Brother Blair writing, on the other hand, works that the Bible portrays as dead and evil basically constitute simply doing our own will. This verdict is not challenged or even mitigated by the fact that we may claim that it is God's will. Works may even be merely believing human theological constructs and creeds about God and salvation, while at the same time standing outside any genuine relationship of power with God that would walk us through the appropriate interpretation of truth. In other words, 
We simply get circumcised and eat right or engage in the correct liturgy, and then we passively believe that this takes care of all of our spiritual problems, or we merely get baptized and then we believe that that takes care of everything, or we merely mentally assent to a certain set of theological facts or to a creedal statement of faith, or we merely profess Christ and then that humanly constructed belief in the saved by Christ idea takes care of it all as far as salvation is concerned. But there is certainly no living by the power of God in any of this, as Paul described saving faith. Rather, any or all of these constitute works, human mental constructs that we believe in more than we trust in and obey God himself, specifically as he brings his living word into our lives by his spirit. I'm going to jump ahead and he gives an example here. That is so powerful because he's saying that theologies, cordwood theologies, can themselves be human works. Amen. And so anything that is attaching to some complacency toward God that, that removes us from relationship, Amen. we can call a human work. Amen. Let me try to bring this last point home, he continues to write, to its application in everyday life. A prominent conservative author, columnist, commentator, popular speaker, and lawyer was lecturing at the University of Texas recently. A young woman in the audience stood up during the question and answer session to ask a question. She too was conservative. So she was not in the least trying to trip up or condemn the woman who was lecturing. But her question went something like this, couldn't you just be a little nicer? Do you have to exchange point for point or jab for jab with your political enemies? The lecturer then tussled her long blonde hair and said something to this effect. Well, this is the way it is. I've accepted Christ as my personal Savior, and He now takes care of everything for me, and nothing else that I do actually matters. For one thing, this incident precisely characterizes the sort of works doctrine I've just described, one that utterly voids all ongoing relationship of loving obedience to God or loving your neighbor. And so it has tremendous repercussions for the witness of Christ in the world. It says, I did something mental, merely assented to or prayed or professed certain facts about Christ, and now nothing else matters. Astoundingly, not even my relationship with God, who supposedly brought all this freedom to pass. So, you know, I, I know that some might say, well, that's an extreme example, you know, of someone just saying that. But isn't that what we're saying when we're talking about, you know, it does not matter anything that we do, anything in response to this encounter that we have with God, nothing of that matters. Aren't we trying to say, isn't there something that I can just solve this issue and be done with the matter? And the Bible time and time and time again is instead pressing one into a relationship with God. And this is, this is the construct that views God as a harsh taskmaster. And so we ask not, how may I know him? Which is Paul's question. I have counted all things loss that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings if I may be conformed to the likeness of his death, so on and so forth. Our quest is not to know him. Our quest is to get our God duty done with, is to detach from him. Amen. And that is legalism. That is legalism. If it is theological legalism or works legalism, that's irrelevant. It's legalism. Because why do I obey the speed limit to avoid interaction with a cop? And why do people 
hide behind these doctrines to avoid interaction with God. They want to solve the God problem so that they can go about living their life in the world that they truly love for the God that they truly love, which is self. Mm -hmm. I want to read, if, I, if I'm not cutting you off, I'd like to read Clement of Rome. And this is very distinct from Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Rome was contemporaneous with the Apostle Paul. Uh, he's spoken of in 1 Corinthians, I believe. Uh, two times in the New Testament, Clement is spoken of. And he would have, uh, he would have been around in the, uh, in the late 100s after Christ. And so his comments on faith and works, for me, give us uh, uh, some insight into the fact that our current dichotomy between faith and works, it did not yet exist in the thinking of prominent Christian theologians of, of, of in the days of Paul. So this man who was a follower of Paul, a disciple of Paul, spoken of by Paul, here's what he says about faith and works. I'm just going to read two, two paragraphs from Clement of Rome. He says, not by eloquence or renown, by station and descent, or by beauty or strength, or by length of life, is the kingdom of heaven obtained, but it is obtained by the power of faith when a man exhibits the works of faith. For whosoever is truly righteous, his works testify concerning his faith that he is truly a believer with a faith that is great, perfect, which is in God, a faith which shines in good works, that the Father of all may be glorified through Christ. Let not righteousness and faith fail you, he goes on. Bind them on your neck, and you shall find favor for yourself, and devise good things before God and before men. The path, therefore, of the righteous shines as the light, and the light of them advances until the day is perfect. For the beams of their light illuminate the whole creation, even now by good works, as those who are truly the light of the world, giving light to those who sit in darkness, that they may arise and go forth from the darkness by the light of the good works of the fear of God, that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. For it is required of the man of God that in all his words and works he be perfect, and that in his life he be adorned with all exemplary and well-ordered behavior and do all his deeds in righteousness as a man of God. Now, in, in this construct, we see what Paul also uses in Romans 1.5 and then Romans 16.5, I think it is, um, where he, Paul says, Paul speaks of the works of faith. We believe that there are the works of of disengagement, the works that are that we can do apart from God, and then there are the works that are inspired by God. And the works that are inspired by God flow from relationship, flow from anointing, and flow specifically from faith. The works that we do that, do, that are not from God, they are of our choosing, and therefore we can boast. In Matthew 10, we see Jesus saying something quite remarkable. And, and, and listen to how the Lord Jesus classifies behavior. And in this, we can see, we can get an insight into Paul's discussion on works. He says, when you are brought 
before rulers to give a testimony. He says, don't worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. Now, this sounds like works, saying what you're going to do. But then he says, for it will not be you who speaks. And in this statement, if there is, any, if there is a meaningful way for Christ to declare that our speech will not be us, in that same sense, Paul is speaking of human works. Not that we're not participating or active, but we're not active in what man is originating. We're not active in what man is choosing for himself. We are active in the relationship that is anointed by the Spirit of God. So he says, it will not be you speaking, but my Father speaking through you. And then he says, what you should say and how you should say it. So it sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. It's a way that they thought. It's what Paul meant when he said, we praise you to the Thessalonians. He said, you received our words, not as the word of men, but as it was in truth, the very word of God, which is able to save you. Now, Paul's not denying that he spoke, but he's acknowledging that what he spoke cannot be credited to man. And so we would say that the righteous requirements of God, that the works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in, they are not classified as works. They do not originate from man, and they are not done by the strength of man. And this is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. How do we know God's grace wasn't in vain? He goes on, for I worked harder than all of you. But then he clarifies, but it was not I. This is the man who speaks against works. He says, it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So right here we have proof that there are works of faith, Romans 1.5. There are works that we participate in that we cannot credit as human works, Matthew 10, it will not be you speaking. And there are works of grace. By the grace of God I am, I worked harder, but it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. And so the, the question is not whether works are involved in saving faith. They unequivocally are, and we can give heaps of scripture to that effect. The question is, do, do, do works, are the works that, 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 that come from faith, can we classify them as human works? Or are they instead works of God and thus part and parcel of the grace that we're all saying saves us? And it's, you know, it's not that those, those works, first off, any works that we would try to accomplished to earn our salvation, we die to that in repentance. Amen. Repentance is dying to the, the nature of flesh that produces works that would try to Amen. be something that originates in us. Amen. So repentance dies to that. Romans 7 makes that clear. There's yes. a, a person that dies at the first foundation stone is repentance from dead works. Amen. But a new man is born, a new relationship is born, and you would never say that, the, that, that what, a, what a wife does the work she participates in to express her love in her relationship with her husband was somehow I'm earning my no. my marriage. She sees it as a gift. Amen. She sees it as a privilege. Amen. And these are just the outflow yes. 
Yes. But if that relationship begins to wane, like we were talking about, whatever those outward expressions are, they become meaningless. Yes. But the true works are not earning anything. No. They are the they are the signal. They are the fruit and of works, a real relationship. Works that attempt to earn mm. are counterfeit. Exactly. I think that's a great example. The mm. wife. You know, the wife doesn't say, honey, I, I sold my car and I made you a cake and I got you a new shirt for your birthday. You ought to marry me. <laughs> There's no sense in which that kind of yeah. relational obedience or rather relational expressions of love. There's no sense in which that's earning anything. Mm -hmm. But if it's not there then it indicates the relationship is not there exactly. and therefore the exchange of assets and liabilities is yeah. not there. And I just want to say to that point, this answers one of the questions I had because people come against this view of justification and say, well, the view you're talking about takes away from the glory of God. But if the, what you're saying is true and the author and the origin of these works is God, when you obey and respond to God, who's getting the glory? Amen. It's God. And Jesus even said, by this my Father is glorified when you bear much fruit. Amen. After Amen. he just got done talking about when you obey my commandments, mm -hmm. you love me. Mm -hmm. And I've appointed you to bear fruit that remains. What glorifies God is when we hear him speak to us and we respond and obey. And those works are from God. It's Matthew 5. Yeah. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you? Is that what he says? No, he says glorify your Father. So anyone who has a construct that says that we glorify flesh when we participate in what God is authoring and anointing, they're contradicting the Scripture. There, is a, there are kinds of works that glorify God and not flesh. And I, and I would just say, maybe we touch on this in a minute, but you know, Christians who adopt this, this view, this cheap grace view, they will make much of the fact that justification is the proprietary uh, work of God alone, of right. Christ alone. Right. But whatever scriptures they will point to that shows that justification is the work of God, we can show equally as many scriptures that show that sanctification is the work of God. And so they say, well, you can pursue sanctifying righteousness because that's subsequent to justification. That's, that comes after just, justification. But you can't pursue justifying righteousness. But this is erroneous because the scriptures that emphasize that justification is the work of God as in his, just equally emphasize that sanctification is the work of God. You know, he says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So sanctification is as much God's proprietary work as justification. Acts 22.16, and now what are you waiting for? He tells him, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He makes Paul the active agent, even though we know that Paul is merely immersing himself into the one who is the only justified man, Jesus Christ the righteous. In 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31, he says, By his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So sanctification is as much the Lord's boast as any other, as justification. He says, uh, 
God chose you through sanctification and belief in the truth. And, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So it's, it's, it's just dishonest to say there are some categories of righteousness, namely justifying righteousness, that is God's proprietary work, and there are other categories of righteousness, sanctifying righteousness, and you can chase that, but you can't touch this one. You can only chase that after this one's complete. This is erroneous because sanctifying righteousness is emphasized to be the activity of God alone as much as justifying righteousness. So the whole thing is just, it's this multiplication of entities. And I, I think that this takes us back to the tree. William of Ockham, when he creates the law of parsimony, or when he rather articulates the, the law of parsimony, or Ockham's razor, he says that the hallmark of a failing model, a failing paradigm, is the multiplication of entities. And by this, he simply means that when someone's position is crumbling under scrutiny and they just start creating endless new categories to accommodate the challenge, that is the sign. That's the flashing red sign that this is a failing paradigm. This is a failing doctrine. So when somebody says, um, well, I believe all Scripture is inspired by God and good for teaching and doctrine. And then you say, okay, well, let's look at the gospel. Oh, that was spoken to the Jews. Well, they've just created a new category. This is a hallmark of a failing paradigm. And you say, well, look what James says over here. James was to the Jews. You know, uh, Hebrews is to the Jews. And they do this endlessly. Oh, oh, that section was just to the Corinthians because they were exceptionally carnal. That's not for all believers everywhere. See how they're making more and more categories to accommodate contradictions to their failing paradigm. But there is a way of looking at all these scriptures that harmonizes them and does not force the scriptures to be broken. As Jesus says in John 10, the scriptures cannot be broken. Amen. Amen. Shall we dive into questions? I've got one that I... It's not one that I planned for, but it's, it's sort of come about as we speak here uh, with this relational paradigm. So what I'd like to do is explain a paradigm that I've perceived and then have you respond to it. Um, so a lot of Christians would say that, um, yes, this is about relationship, but I just don't, I don't feel that anymore. I don't feel the same way I used to. I don't feel like doing righteous works. I, um, you know, we, we have, I, I actually heard a pastor say uh, just a couple of weeks ago something to the effect of um, feeling spiritually dry or spiritually dead inside even is, is a case of the normals in the Christian life. So that's sort of a, a normal thing. Um, you know, we, we all know that some of the passages that the Lord used in my life is, uh, you know, you, you can abandon your first love and you must repent over that, right? So there, there is, there is a leaving your first love. But where I, where I come from, the churches where I come from, use Romans 7 a lot to justify the fact that Paul himself would not be able to do the things that he wants to do, and he would do the things that he doesn't want to do, and he struggled back and forth with his own sin nature. And so that's sort of just a normal thing in the Christian life to feel dead inside to uh, struggle with your sin nature, to not feel that love for God that you once felt. And so based on what you're saying now, what you're laying out, this relational paradigm, 
um, that would say that there's that there's broken relationship. That would say that that relationship is not right, not good. Um, what would you say to the person that's stuck there, but they're thinking, well, actually, you know, it, it's not that bad. There's not a whole lot of urgency behind it because at the end of the day, I got saved 10 years ago and I'm going to heaven and I'm just going through a really dry season right now. But hopefully, you know, that, that'll get patched up in the future and I'll be back on track with the Lord and so on and so forth. And I'll add one more thing to that. It's almost offensive to a lot of Christians when you start talking about walking in righteousness, when you start talking about victory over sin, when you start talking about, no, there is a way to actually have victory over sin, walk in righteousness, increase in holiness, and, and do good works. Yes. And it's like, well, what are you saying? You know, it's almost like an offense because it's like, well, if I'm not doing that, if I'm not producing that, and you're telling me you can, what are you saying? You found something that I haven't. So can, can you just talk about that? that whole paradigm? I was already turning to, to Revelations uh, 2 and 1 where he writes to the Ephesian church and he says that you know you've done you've got all this good that you're doing right you're doing this right you're doing that right he's really praising them more than the others and then he says but I have this one thing against you you have lost your first love and what he's saying is you're losing your salvation he said, the remedy for losing this love is repentance. Amen. Therefore, repent and do again the deeds you did at the beginning. And he says, if you don't, I'm going to remove your lampstand. So there's no sense in which, if you don't, that's okay. Everybody grows cold. You know, Jesus said the love of most will grow cold because lawlessness abounds. There's some sin in our lives that we're tolerating. And, and if we let lawlessness in our uh, lives abound, we will, we will develop a callous. And our love for God will grow cold. And if we don't love Him, we won't keep His commandments. And if we don't love Him, then we haven't passed out of death and into life. We don't love Him and the brethren. Amen. So the remedy to that trial or that sin or that, that abating love, that cooling love, is repentance and urgency. If you, ha if you are in a marriage and you start to feel that you're drawing away from your wife, try copying that same attitude. Well, I was married seven years ago. You know, that's exactly like saying I was saved seven years ago. It assumes that it's a static thing and it is not. That's a whole nother discussion, but it is not. Peter says, if you become entangled in the pollutions of this world and overcome, it's worse for you than at the beginning. Well, at the beginning, we were lost. At the beginning, we were condemned to hell. And he says it's worse than that. So we obviously reject any notion of eternal security uh, as such. God is patient to give us opportunity to get things right. But he's not going to pretend with us that we have a saving relationship when in fact we don't. He's going to say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? And he's going to say, not everyone who claims Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will enter, but only he who does the will of my Father, he will enter. And any other construct is just deception. Be not deceived. Those who practice righteousness are righteous, and those who practice unrighteousness are of the devil. 
By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious, John said. So we have got to look at this cooling of righteousness as a barometer of the health of our relationship. And if we are cooling down and we can't seem to get through, we need to remember that he says, in the day you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. We need to seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness on us. Isn't that what he says in Hosea? Plow up your fallow ground and cry out to the Lord. Seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness on you. And that fallow ground is that hard-panned, hardened conscience that says this is okay. It is not okay. It is indicative of losing your saving relationship with God. And anybody that promotes any other doctrine, they're promoting deception. And that's a, that's a tragedy. Now, just as a segue into the Romans 7 thing, uh, I don't believe for a minute that Paul is describing his relationship with Christ in that portrayal. I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that, but I'll, I'll defer to Brother Zach. Well, it's, it's interesting because I, you know, the, the context of the passage, I think, would quickly dispel the idea that this is Paul saying that this is going to be the normal Christian experience. Um, he starts chapter 7 to discuss marriage, and he's not doing that because he's got some side theme in the middle of this great work on what it means to be in right relationship with God. And he goes, you know, let's just get a few things squared away on marriage, and I'll get back to my point. Um, he, he, he uses marriage to describe something really impactful. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another, then she is not an adulteress. And so he introduces this entire idea by saying that there are those who are still trying to be right with God through some type of legal satisfaction, something that they are just trying to obtain by the law, by their own works, to solve a relationship problem, okay? And he says anyone who is still underneath that type of approach to being right with God cannot be married unto God. In fact, listen to what he says to make sure that there's no question of why he just brought up this marriage analogy. Verse 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. In fact, I sometimes think that maybe we could get around the dead works and, and good works discussion by just saying dead works and fruit towards God. Amen. You know, that's ultimately what we're talking about, right? We're saying that, we're saying that there Amen. is a relationship with God that bears fruit Amen. and that that fruit is the demonstration of the relationship. Amen. I mean, isn't this what John 15 says? I am the vine, you are the branches. Anyone who abides in me will bear much fruit. And so, again, he, he says here, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Amen. And he says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. And I'll tell you... I, if that question is genuine, someone is asking what has happened, why has love for God grown cold? 
you know, and what, what is the remedy? What, what is the shift here? You know, we see something in here that talks about, well, perhaps your relationship has turned very mechanical and you're relying on historical confessions you made and just kind of a checkbox that you make when it comes to your relationship, but you're living your life largely according to your own design and will. And if that is the case, I'll tell you right away, you're going to be disconnected from the vine. The way that union with God comes is through humility, and the way that humility is expressed is in the surrender of one's will. Does everyone connect with me? So it says that grace is this overflowing reservoir to the humble. But in order for humility to have an actual expression, it's an inward attitude, but it, it manifests itself in some way. And that way is described as yielding oneself unto the will of another. It is to count one's another interest is more important than your own. Chiefly in this case, to die unto yourself and to live unto God. It says, behold, that is the new creation. It is one who has died unto self-will and is now alive unto God. And so you turn over to Romans 8 and you hear him saying, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. Here again, talking about a relationship in which if you are still living in the flesh and trying to please God by just saying, I mentally assented to that or I can check this box off. He says that whole pattern is death. In fact, it's a mind that's hostile towards God and it cannot please God. And he said, but if you abandon that altogether and give your whole will and life unto him, and surrender yourself unto him, you will be attached to him in union. Namely, you will be filled with his spirit and you will be carried along by his spirit into all that he might ask you to do. And what would he might ask you to do? Well, he might ask you to be circumcised and, and he might ask you to take your son Isaac up onto a mountain and to sacrifice him. But time and time again, what you're agreeing with is in me, there is no life. And every word that proceeds out of his mouth is life. And so I yield my will to him and the faith that I have, the trust that I have in this relationship yields itself into acts of obedience that are in accordance with what God has asked us to do. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I just, I want to say, Paul is speaking rhetorically here of the bound uh, Jewish believer prior to grace coming through Christ. Amen. Otherwise, you cannot harmonize what he says from uh, verse 7 through 25 with what he says in in chapter 8. He says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And what the law could not do in, what it was, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So He says here, us do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So whatever, that cannot contradict what He said above. Okay, so this notion, he doesn't say, he doesn't talk about we do walk according to the flesh, but we have this exemption from penalty. We enjoy this status change. That is not what he says. He says we don't walk according to the flesh. He's already said that in the flesh, there's nothing good. 
That's why he says, we don't walk according to the flesh. Amen. And he just read, for if you walk according to the flesh, for if for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So you cannot harmonize all this in the present concrete tense with if you're assuming that Paul's rhetorical discourse on this captive Jew who's trying to broker righteousness through the law. That's what he's describing up here. He's describing himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees prior to thanks be to God and then this life in the spirit. Just a, a scripture in Galatians 5 is parallel to that. Right. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Amen. Amen. The only way to be out from under the law is being led by the Spirit. And that's what the, the answer Romans 8 gives. It doesn't end with the last verse of chapter 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Great. That's all there is to it. Then he's going to show you how that happens Amen. by becoming in him through Amen. the Spirit. It really hit me when he just read that passage that he's saying to be out from underneath the law is to be found in the only perfectly justified man. Amen. And so to be out from underneath that law is to be found in him. And yet we know union in him is only possible when, according to Romans 7, you have died Amen. to a way of approaching God that was according to your own measure, and you have surrendered your will over to the will of another. Amen. And then in perfect union with Him. I mean, even think about the verse you just read. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in, in Christ Amen. Jesus. And then it gives you a description in case you want to know, well, who are those who are in Him? Amen. Well, those who live not according to the flesh, but according but to the Spirit. Amen. Those who do not do their own desires. Can't Amen. we then look at a Matthew 7 and say, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord. Yeah. And I'll say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for you did not do the will of my Father. Amen. I mean, this again, it continues to come to this same thing. I mean, think of how many passages. Whoever has my commandments and keep them is the one who loves me. Yeah. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. I could read pages of those passages, but really all they would reinforce is the same thing time and time again, which is that relationship with God or love for God is there is an overflow of work or actions or the obedience to commandments yes. that, that demonstrate that that relationship is yes. intact. Yes. And time and time and time again, the scriptures are going to say that. And, and the, the radical uh, free gracers will say, well, yes, good works flow from your salvation. They don't create your salvation. And, and I will respond, and if they don't flow from your salvation, it's not salvation. Right. Yeah, well, I think we could go ahead and agree that works are not going to save anyone. I mean, that Amen. is absolutely fine to say. But we do have to go ahead and make sure that we understand what the rest of Scripture is talking about, though. Yeah. Because it is talking about if you do hold fast firm unto the end, if you do not shrink back, you know. Mm. And these passages over and over again have to be dealt with. Yeah. Works aren't going to save anyone. Christ's atoning sacrifice exactly. saves everyone. 
but we appropriate that sacrifice through faith. And if that faith does not include works, it's not faith. Right. Therefore, we don't appropriate it. Amen. Amen. Abraham's faith was made complete, perfect by his, works. by his works. In other words, it would not have been complete faith. It was like faith, right. but not quite faith. Exactly. Okay. Without doing what God told him to do. Yeah. I, wonder if, I wonder if how many churches would actually allow our Lord to walk in and speak to them the way that he spoke to the churches in Revelation. I wrote down just a few of them, but I mean, I'm serious. It, 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 let's say it's like on the road to Emmaus, and the, the man that's walking next to him, they don't recognize. So he walks into their church, but it is the Spirit of Christ. He gets up to the pulpit. He first reads this. He says, listen, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So I, does, does somebody immediately go, wait, to the one who conquers? No, I've, it's already been conquered for me. I just sit in the conqueredness of it all, okay? Um, you know, or how about if he kept on, he said, okay, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He says a great trial and testing is coming. Mm -hmm. You hold firm all the way to the end and receive then your reward, the crown of life. Listen to what he says to the next church. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, speaking of an overcoming. This is Revelation 2. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. And I will give to each one according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only this, hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. Listen to this one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write this, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Yet you have a still few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." Then the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. By the way, I heard a preacher just the other day, a short clip, say, you know what? Nothing I can ever do will ever change my status. When I said Jesus was my Lord, my name was written on the book of life. And he does not go, I'm going to blot that name out of this book ever. And I'm sitting there going, you mean except to the church in Sardis, in which he says, your works have not been found complete in my sight. And he says, therefore repent and be zealous to repent and get this right, lest I blot your name out of this book of life. I mean, it's like 
in the churches, the Lord wouldn't even be able to speak to them under this paradigm. If he said any of these words, we would get the objection. Uh, quick word there. Who let this guy to the pulpit? You know, I mean, that's the type of response we'd have because our framework, again, is saying that true relationship with God does not demand any outward manifestation of devotion and works. And we all know that's not true, you know? Amen. And before we say, oh, well, that's, that's not how Paul taught. This is Paul in Ephesians, in, in Romans 2. But in accordance with your hardness and your unpenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. We've got two questions that have come in. I think this one's already been answered, but sure. uh, I think it's a good one to throw out first. Can you speak to the statement that has been spoken to me recently? God's love is unconditional, dot, dot, dot. So why do, quotes I need to worry? I accepted Jesus as my Savior, and God loves me, so I am saved. God's love is unfailing. But the human construct that classifies it as unconditional is neither true nor biblical. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We are told that Jesus loved him. Amen. Are we not? Yes. But Jesus gives him steps of obedience that would have activated saving faith. The man refuses and Jesus does not, the man does not go away enjoying that love which Jesus has for him. So all throughout the Bible, he says things like, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. He says, greater love hath no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He says in Hosea 9:15, because of their wickedness at Gilgal, I came to hate them. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. So we are confusing the unfailingness of God's love and that he never fails. His love is never the breakdown in the relationship. We're confusing that with a kind of coercive love that force feeds you God's will no matter what you want. And this is... This is so unbiblical and, and, and uh, superimposed on, on the, the whole narrative and character of Scripture and, and God. It's unbelievable. And yet people act like it's just this foregone conclusion. God's love is unconditional. No, it's not. Amen. And just to show again that the, this love of God is in a context. It's in a family. That's right. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. There's a place where his love is unfailing, but we can go out of that place. Yes. That's why he will love them no more. I will drive them out of my house. That's the place where right. the love of the Father is. But we don't, we're not forced to stay in that place. Which is the same he's saying when he weeps over Jerusalem. Right. How often I would have 
Now here we see God's love weeping through Christ. He's weeping over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I would have. So here's this potential action that God wanted to do. But he said, how often I would have gathered your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. So your house will be left to you desolate until you do something, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the authority, the name of the Lord. Until they accept, accepted God's authority, desolation was their choice. And the Lord's love was not going to force feed them salvation. He was going to stand afar and weep and say he would have done something, but their will interfered, their unwillingness to submit. Amen. It's like, if God's love is unconditional, then he is an adulterer. Let me just say it that way. If God's love is unconditional, then he is not our bridegroom, he is an adulterer. Because he demands that we come into covenant. He says, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Amen? He says in James, his spirit yearns jealously for us. James 4, 8. Amen? So God has a jealousy. And he says, I want to give you my love, but you're going to have to come into covenant relationship on my terms. And if you're unwilling to keep those terms, I will drive you from my house. Quote, I will love you no more. Yeah. And it's not that he doesn't love us, but he loves us as the rich young ruler was loved. That love is not realized. That love is not a transformative reality. So God is still loving. He's still looking at us sad because he loved us. But that love is not being effective to change our lives. I'll just briefly add to that that what we, whatever we're doing, we're taking statements that the Apostle Paul and others would write and say, this is very trustworthy. You can, you can rely upon this statement. And we're making them statements that are actually saying this is untrustworthy and something you cannot rely upon. You know, in 2 Timothy 2, he says, This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So all of a sudden, something he says here, This you can relay to other men in the church and know that it is a trustworthy statement, a conditional thing. If we die with him, We'll live with him. If we endure with him, we'll reign with him. But if we deny him, he will deny us. He says, here's your trustworthy statement. Relay it to the saints. We don't even have a, we, I mean, we can't even hear these words anymore with how we're constructing this. It, it's no longer a trustworthy statement by the apostle. It's something that is now called into suspicion. Amen. Amen. I want to just read Psalms 103 and 17. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. So the everlastingness of God's love, his love never goes away. His love never fails, never gives up. Amen. It's always there, but it is in the context of covenant. And we must enter that covenant Amen. His love is from everlasting, but it's only to those who fear Him. They're the ones who are going to receive it. Uh, quote, 
I may have missed it, but could you uh, define, explain justification? Also, can you speak on your perspective on the relationship between regeneration, in parentheses, the new birth, and justification? Amen. So justification, I would say, I would describe like this. Jesus Christ is the only justified man. First Timothy 3.16 says he was preached among the nations, received up into glory, justified in the spirit. So Jesus is justified. John says, calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. So our, when we are justified, our justification occurs when we become indivisible with that man when we become one with that one justified man. So when he talks about our captivity, he says he ascended on high and led captive a host of captives. We don't see that Christ brought about justification, brought about um, our atonement, and then just scattered it indiscriminately. Instead, he said, there's a place where you can come, where you can you can find healing, you can find grace, you can find forgiveness of sins. It's in me. So our justification corresponds to the loss of our identity and the merger with his lordship identity and spirit. And so it's all about oneness. Everything that relates to oneness facilitates our justification because it facilitates our union with the only one who is truly righteous before God. He doesn't give me a stamp on my passport. He tells me that I will use his passport, that I will become part of him, that we might become the righteousness of, of God in him. And then the, the other part of your question was... Um, I may have missed it, but could you define, explain justification? Also, can you speak on your perspective on the relationship between regeneration uh, in parentheses, the new birth and justification. Amen. Well, I, we believe that that justification is by by faith. So as we as we begin to trust God, and and in the definition that we've described here, the moment of legitimate trust begins the imputation of His righteousness into in our lives. But it's a process. Amen. It's a journey. It's an exodus. We're moving increasingly toward him. And so he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So there is this, there is this complete sacrifice on his part, but he gives it to those who are in process. As soon as we turn our backs and walk away from him in distrust, we lose it. As long as we struggle and strive and press on. Paul says, I have not already attained it nor have I been perfected. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing toward what lies ahead, I press on to win the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the saving, the, the saving faith that, that credits Christ's righteousness to us is a, is a faith of increasingly becoming and pressing forward. So we're always, as long as we're pressing toward the impartation of his righteousness were covered by the imputation of his righteousness. But it's always being transformed into the image of his son. Likewise, in Hebrews, he says, 
we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, indicating that, that damnation is the result of drawing back. And it's imagery, but it's powerful to draw back, to lean back, just like I'm leaning back in my chair. It denotes complacency. It's self-satisfaction. But he says, we press on to the saving of the soul. So our posture has got to be one of faith. And, and somebody says, well, what if I lose my faith on an afternoon and I die? Well, God protects you from that because he says he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. He lets you live long enough to repent. It's not that your unrepentance is okay. It's that he is long-suffering and won't let you die in that unrepentance. He'll give you a chance to come to repentance. <laughs> Amen. So it's the whole, the whole justification, the whole uh, reception of his righteousness is based on a posture of faith that is pressing forward. Now, what is regeneration? I mean, it's regeneration. You know, Paul said in Galatians 3 that if life could have been given through the law, then justification would have been by the law. So he's saying whatever is going to truly bring justification has to bring life. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So we're in this place of death, and something has got to bring us back to life. And he's saying the law was not what's going to do that. But Jesus said it's the Spirit John that gives 6, life. John 6, 63. It and, is the Spirit who gives life. Yeah. The flesh profits nothing. And so when we receive the Spirit, when we're reborn, that is when this new life comes. Something's actually been imparted. Now, the, that birth is not the very beginning, though. There's a word that conceives. That first time that word of God comes into our life, something's conceived, an awareness, an awakening, but it takes us to that birth where it becomes a realization. Uh, and that's what regeneration is. A new life has, been, has come into being through the word of God. And that's the new man. He says, put off the old man, put on the new man. This is the new man which is created after God and true righteousness and holiness. Washing of water by the Word and re renewal in the Holy Spirit and yeah. washing of regeneration. Saved us by the washing of regeneration. Washing of regeneration. Let me read that because it... Um, and just while you're, while you're going there, I just want to underscore something he just said. The Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the impartation of His life to us. But it doesn't mean we are, sa we are unsaved prior to that. Yeah. It means that is so important that it is credited to us until it can be imparted. Mm. And it's, the crediting is, begins at the first moment of faith, of sincere faith in a biblically defined way. Yeah. Just to go to that passage in Titus, in Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace. So what is the grace of God? Is it this thing that covers us and allows us to continue in our own way? No, it's the power. It says in the chapter before this, it's the power of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness in Titus 2.11 and to live righteous, holy, in this present age. So this grace is this power that comes into our life through the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, we're saved through the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, and he calls that being justified Amen. by his grace. Two people texted me on a clarification. 
that, that they're asking for. To say his love is not unconditional may not paint the clearest picture. The rich young ruler went away and Jesus didn't stop loving him, but the rich young ruler was essentially removing himself positionally from the place of receiving that love. That's it. That is, okay, so I can, I can, I can stop it there. I totally agree with that. Okay. Amen. So his love, that's what I'm saying in a realized sense, there, the love of God was there for the rich young ruler, but he didn't realize it. He didn't live in it and it didn't save him because his will prevented it. He's made in God's image and he had the choice to receive it. I thought the way they described that was excellent. Amen. Yeah. So I, I think maybe the, the fact that you said his love is not unconditional. Correct. It is not. Okay. And I think what's so somebody else, let me just do this one then. It says... What we're not saying is, we're not saying God changes, his love changes, but the person moves outside of that realm Amen. of love. Yes. It's like in any meaningful sense, his love is not unconditional. His love is conditional. We're saying you must place yourself, here's the condition, place yourself in this place where God's love is, where, God, where you're obeying him, where you have faith, then you're receiving his love that is unfailing. But the very thing that his unfailing love is, is conditional. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not that it, it ceases to be love because we're not realizing it, but it's meaningless to say the, the, the assumption drawn from Romans 8 and others is that the unfailingness or the unconditionality of his love secures me somehow. No, because I'm not receiving it unless I put myself in that covenant where it is being given. So that would be right for me to say it this way. Um, the existence of that love is unconditional, but the receiving of the love is conditional. That's fair. That's fair. Okay. And I'm just saying the receiving of the love is the only meaningful way that, I, that people are typically referring to it. But that's, that's, that's a more precise definition. I think a, a popular Christ, Christian minister, he said, he said if, if God demands unconditional love from us, but is unwilling to show unconditional love to us. He's requiring a greater love from us than he's willing to give himself. And the confusion that produces is if we can see that God is love and he is the definition of love, which requires the reason we can love him unconditionally is because we trust that he is love. He is what we are being conformed to. For him to say that he owes the same thing to us would be that he has to change to accommodate whatever we call love. But the truth is, He is love. He, and He is, we have to change to pos position ourselves in a place that that love can be of benefit to us. God so loved the world, but the whole world is not saved. Right. So when we speak of His saving love, it is conditional. We cannot receive that saving love which He harbors for all the world. He loves every man, woman, and child. And he loves us enough to save us. But we have to come into the context where that love can be realized and, and, and uh, powerful in our lives to save us. Otherwise, he stands from afar and says, I would have, but you were unwilling. Would it be fair to say that my love for my grown son would, would not change? It would be unconditional. But should he choose to just take off and never see me again, he would not be will, able to receive that love. It's just at some point the term becomes meaningless because, sure, my love would never die for my son. But what is love? A feeling without an action? No. So I'm defining love from James. He loves not who loves in word and tongue only, but in deed and truth. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, if my son became a murderer, I would not facilitate his crime. And so the love of protection would be withheld from him. I would not shield him from the law if he was killing his sibling. Do you understand? So while my love for him would not die, it would be imprisoned by his disobedience. Mm -hmm. And as such, it's not meaningful to say that my love is unconditional. My love is conditional. And it's only a, a very proud human nature that has recently developed this mantra. And I'm not referring to the people asking the questions. These are good questions. These are excellent. But, you know, a lot of, there's, there's a lot of pride in unconditional love, in my opinion. Oh, my love is unconditional. It, it's self-flattering. And it's not true. There's not, a, there's not a spouse that feels that way when they're cheated upon. They feel like, you just broke the conditions of our covenant. Mm -hmm. Now what do we do? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So all of life shows us that love is conditional. And, and God may harbor love in his heart for us, but it's up to us to find a place of repentance where that love can be expressed and transformative in our lives in any meaningful sense other than as an unexpressed thought in the, in the mind of God. And, and in that case, it's no different than the love he harbors for Hitler. In Ephesians 5, he says, Therefore be imitators of God, and as beloved children, as those loved children, walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he says that this is the place of love. You need to walk in that love. Here, a few verses later, continues, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So he says, walk in love because you can be sure of this, that those who are walking according to the flesh have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Why is that? Where do they stand if they don't stand in the kingdom of his beloved? This is what he says. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So he says there's this place in which the love of God is. Mm -hmm. Keep yourself in that love. Be imitators of that love. But know for certain, let no one deceive you with empty words. If you are practicing these things of the flesh, you are outside of the love of God. And what stands outside of the love of God is the consequence and wages of sin, namely the wrath of God. You, you see? So he's saying keep oneself here in this place. And he can't be more clear. He, he, he writes in just about every single one of his letters, 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5, Galatians 5, the same phrase, let no one deceive you, let no one deceive you. Uh, what he's saying is let no one deceive you by telling you that there's this unconditional love that doesn't care about the actions you do. He says, let no one tell you that that's the case. He says, but love is a place, namely a place of union relationship with the living God. And if you are not in that place, yielded unto him to do his will. I mean, if God is life, then isn't it true to say that if we are not abiding in him, we are not abiding in love, we're not abiding in life, and we're not abiding in the light? And if that's the case, then how can we sit there and say that when we're not abiding in Him, we're going to find light and love and life outside of Him? That's essentially what we're arguing. We're saying, I can live according to the carnal man who is hostile, it is at odds with relationship with God, and still stand in life. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds like the devil's voice himself. 
That doesn't sound like the gospel in any way. Instead, the gospel is saying this type of relationship, this justified man, this man who stands with a, a right standing with the Lord and right relationship is possible through an immersive relationship with the Savior in which you are, you are crucified, buried, and raised with Him into the newness of life. Amen. Amen. Let me just read John 15, 9, which we've referenced. But as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So that, that, that sacrifice at Calvary is an expression of love for friends. But then he qualifies friends as only those who do what he commands us. I, I also think of Romans 11. He, he says, you will say branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Only do not be haughty, but fear. So there's no juxtaposition between godly faith and godly fear. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Paul's saying this to the saints of God at Rome. This is not unconditional love. He will not spare you either. either. Therefore consider the kindness and severity of God. Severity meaning to sever. On those who fell, severity, but towards you, kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. So Paul guarantees them that they will be cut off from the source of life if they don't maintain the right posture of faith, a faith that is not in consonant with fear the right kind of fear of God. I can just sense this feeling of real insecurity coming on people right now as you're talking about this. And I just, I want to I wanna ask this, I want to frame this question here. It says, I think we can all agree that the salvation that we're re referring to is from God. It's the gift of God. Hebrews 5 calls him the author of eternal salvation. Hebrews 7 reminds us that this salvation is to the uttermost and complete it's not partial. And so Jesus also said, He who believes in me will never die. He goes on to say, No one can snatch them from my hand. The Apostle John tells us these, the scriptures have been written for us that we might know that we would have eternal life. There's that security. It seems to me that this work of salvation is a work of God, and when God does a work, He always finishes that work. He who began the good work in you is going to carry it on to completion. With that being said, it seems like your view of salvation is a little bit wobbly and insecure, with the emphasis more on man trying to stay right with God instead of just knowing that God has already made us right with Him and really just trusting Him for that righteousness. Mm. Well, that had such a flavor to it, Dylan. <laughs> I can almost believe you had backslid. Can, can I just add that uh, Romans 8.39, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so let me ask you, how do you harmonize that with what I just read from Romans 11? 
How, how do you harmonize that? Let's well, let's. That's a different category. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I do think just before you jump in, I, I will say one thing about this, and and I think that in so much time of debating, you know, these topics, we can end up, you know, on the side that that needs to demonstrate that that scripturally or biblically speaking. Um, that there is a response, there is a, a the, the other party in covenant, the person that needs to respond to the acts that God has done. And when we're stressing on, when we're stressing that side and we're spending time explaining that, um, you know, it's very important because it, there's an imbalance there, uh, especially in what's being taught on the churches, kind of broadly speaking. A lot of the, your actions don't matter, your works don't matter. But it, it can tend to neuter or to really start to, um, to bring all the potency out of something that we all firmly believe in, and I just want to emphasize for a minute. Those passages that were just read or quoted, some were quoted passages, some were filled in commentary on what passages were saying, but the passages that were read, those are passages that we too go to for great sources of encouragement and strength and, and provide the endurance that we feel we need. I mean, I, when I think about how I'm going to make it to the end, I think about the fierceness of God's love that I am availing to myself to every single day. And that there is something that is attaching to me and anchoring me in Him that is height or depth or principalities or death or life or nothing. Nothing can come against this, you know? And I, and I will say that there, there really is nothing more powerful than someone who is completely yielded in relationship to God who is without measure in his power and devotion unto us. I mean, there's something that is, is unmatched in it, you know? And so when we come to these passages, it's not for us. It's only in this context that it's like this. In this context, we have to all of a sudden say, well, these passages, you know, but, but I'll just tell you, when we read those passages, we get life from them. We get encouragement and strength from them. It's just that we have to make sure that someone is not going, well, because this passage says this, this is what it's actually saying, that no one can snatch you out of my hand, which means that it doesn't matter what you do in your entire life. If you're the one that's been placed in his hand, you're good to go. Nothing will ever snatch you out of it. That would be such a terrible understanding of that passage. You know, and that would be taking it way beyond what it is that he's saying. There is nothing in Scripture that tells you that you can depart from the love of God and choose to walk according to the flesh now and to indulge in the desires of the flesh and have some confidence that because he said no one would snatch you out of my hand, that you still stand in his hand in covenantal love. I mean, this would be the insanity of talking to a husband who has not been living with his wife, living on the street so he could shuck all responsibility, doing drugs, shooting up, you know, doing inappropriate things with, with other women on the streets. And then you sit there and come up to him and you ask him about this. And he says, I just have such a deep abiding love for my wife. Well, of course you don't. I mean, everything about your life tells us that that's not the case and that you're not in the fidelity of that relationship, you know. And, and so these passages that are talking about everything that God has done, He can bring this work all the way to its completion. He's the only one who can, which is all the reason more why we yield to Him mm-hmm. all of our life and will, why we won't take our life into our own hands, why we won't do the legal framework that so many do, 
I'll tell you, that legal framework of mental assent, is it going to carry you across the Jordan on the day that you meet, need it most? When death is pressing in, is really what you're going to lean on? Is just you're going to say, well, uh, I think I'm going to get a passing grade on the Scantron test of, of this, this doctrinal exam that I'm about to face at the end of my life. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I did not know you. There was not this knowing, you know? And so, you know, our, our belief is, is that when we avail ourselves unto this love, we are carried along by a power and a life that Paul said, I pray that they would even comprehend and understand so that they would be so deeply rooted and grounded in it that they would never depart from the love of God. They would never give themselves again to their own ways. They would never choose life in their own hands again, that they would stay as one who says, every word you speak is life to me, Lord. That's where I live. You see, you see what I mean? I just want to be careful because, you know, we can talk about those passages in the right way, but let's just not make sure that we don't want the wrecking ball to be crushing your passages that give you hope. We just want to say, is that hope truly founded in relationship? And if it's not, if it's, it's founded in some creed or some mental assent that you did, then you're being deceived. You're being lied to. And if your life itself is not flourishing with the fruit of the Spirit and you don't have the fruit of God bearing, then how can you say that you're abiding in the vine, abiding in His love? How can you say that? It, 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 we know it's a deception. And that's, that's what we're trying to get at the heart at here today more than anything else. Amen. 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 Can I do some sword clashing now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you quote John, I'll start in chronological order. You quote John 10, I know those who are mine. Now, you've just given two salvation phrases. You've given the possessive term, mine, and you've given the no term, relationship. Okay, so we know that we know him if we keep his commandments and we know that we're his, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we don't qualify for being those known who are his possession unless we have crucified the flesh and we are living according to his commandments. And then it says, and they cannot walk away from my hand. Is that what it says? No, it says none can snatch them out of my hand. That, does, that is not the same thing as walking away from his hand. Okay, so let's just read this. Otherwise, it's not a very trustworthy statement that Paul said, if we deny him, he will deny us. Correct. That, that seems like an untrustworthy statement if we can be in his hand and never be snatched out because we can't walk away or deny his love. All of these scriptures are saying there is no outside power that can coercively steal you from God's love. And that is the truth. But look at, look at 2 Peter 3.17. Dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawlessness and fall from your secure position. Now that is either a meaningless statement, there's no way to fall from his, their secure position, or they can. He says you can be carried away James says when you're carried away, you're carried away by your own lusts and desires. So if you can be carried away, you can fall from your secure position. Do we have a secure position? Yes, but we can fall from it. How about Galatians 5.4 where Paul says, You who are seeking to be justified by the law have been severed from grace. <laughs> so it's not that anyone can snatch us out of his hand, but we can just stand up and walk out of his hand. 
He's, he does not coercively retain us against our will. Even so, as long as we remain faithful, nobody else can take us from his hand. Say that, say that Galatians passage now in the framework of what we're talking about. Amen. To anyone who seeks to be right with God through a creed has severed himself from the grace of God. Yeah. Do you understand that? It's saying that you are saying, I don't want to deal with relationship. I just want to mentally assent to something. It says, if that's the relationship that you want, you no longer have grace. Because grace comes to the humble, the one who is yielding his life and will in relationship to God. You see the key of what he's saying there? We always just read circumcision into that. It's not just circumcision. To the one who seeks to be justified by the law, you have severed yourself from grace. Yes. It is saying to the one who wants to be right with God. Severed from Christ, fallen from grace. Yeah. Severed from Christ. It's saying the one who wants to be made right with God through your own attainment, through your own solution that solves all of this, is the one who has severed himself from the life flow of grace. Exactly. Isn't that the truth? Hey, can't you say that in your own life? Absolutely. Amen. And that's what he's saying in Second Peter. Does this comport with your, the narrative of your question? He says, brothers, strive to make your calling and election sure. Strive to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these things, you will never stumble. And he says, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, if, if any man thinks he is standing firm, let him be careful or let him take heed lest he fall. So none of these things relate. None of these passages, Romans 8, uh, John 10, none of these passages relate to the choices that we can make as those in the image of God with the power to receive his love or to reject it. In Revelations 2, 5, he says, Therefore keep in mind how far you have fallen, Repent and perform the deeds you did at first. But if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I mean, that's not, that does not, all of these scriptures are important. And I love what Brother Zach said. They are a nourishment for our soul. How many times have we gone through a trial and, and, and derived strength from Romans 8? Amen. 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 Praise Amen. God for it. Amen. And what he's saying there, he, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the trials that we grow, go through where we groan within ourselves. And we say, God, I'm separated from my health. I'm separated from my family. I'm separated from my youth, but I'm not separated from the love of God. Amen. It doesn't mean I can't walk away from the love of God. doesn't mean I can't do despite to the spirit of grace and trample underfoot the blood of the covenant by which I was sanctified. I can, tragically. Amen. If, if he would have read this passage, I mean, are they going to say, you know, I don't like this. You're, you're making it seem as though that, that I have to continue to endure in order to inherit the reward. And yet he says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may, receive, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Isn't he saying, my righteous one, isn't he saying that the one who is in right relationship with me and in union relationship with me, the one who is behaving as a son because he's in the son, right? Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying that in that one... Right? He stands in right relationship with me. You know? And his, his exhortation there is not, 
again, to, to feel any kind of confidence apart from having done the will of God and persevering all the way to the end. Amen. 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 What I keep hearing and what you brothers are sharing is that God has a security for his people that's more than we could ever Amen. imagine. Exactly. And that security is not in some legal, solely some legal declaration yeah. that yet our, our hearts condemn us, our conscience are not clean, and yeah. we don't feel this connection with God. I think about what he says there in 1 John. He says, and we, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in his love abides in God and God in him. We just heard about how we do that. The love has been per perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness. This is that security he wants us to have. And that in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Amen. That oneness with God, that relationship with God is what brings the security. Amen. And God wants us to have a place of security Amen. in him as sons, not as, as some impersonal uh, he's some impersonal taskmaster and he's made some legal declaration. Therefore, somehow we have security in that. It's Amen. in the relationship Amen. that makes us one with him. Amen. I like this translation of that Second Peter three seventeen. He says, be on your guard so that you will not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure standing, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. 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 I would just say what provides more endurance or more security, a relationship that you can't imagine violating or an appeal to an abstract set of principles. I mean, you know, I'll just give you a quick example of that. Um, I think that when I was growing up, um, it, it, we definitely heard the idea that uh, you should not uh, be kissing on girls and things like that. And yet, because that was never um, given to me in the context of a relationship, that never meant anything to me when I was in high school. It didn't. In fact, how people behaved with one another is what I took to be the general rule. And so the idea of, of kissing on a girl was not, there was, no, there was no outside principle that held me fast to that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And yet I remember when I met a man and he told me that he had never kissed a girl his entire time until he got married. And he got married at like 22, 23 years of age. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm just telling you from the world that I came from, I remember thinking, how is that possible? I mean, that, that, that. and so I asked him that. I said, that does not make any sense to me at all. I mean, did you go, were you homeschooled or did you go to a public school? And he goes, I went to a public high school. I said, you went to a public high school and you, you, you never kissed a girl and even went to college, you never kissed a girl? I mean, how is that possible? I, I just don't even understand it. And he goes, well, uh, it's like this. My dad was the most honorable man that I ever knew. And he goes, and if it ever went around town that I was smooching on some girl and that word got back to my dad and it reflected on him and who he was as a father, and he goes, it would have been the death of me. And he said, so I couldn't imagine doing something like that and tarnishing his name. So let me tell you, did an outward principle of you shouldn't do this or the devotion of relationship hold the obedience needed to see this all the way through to the end? And that's what we're forfeiting when we're taking this mental ascent rather than the deep abiding relationship with God. One has the power to truly hold us. The other one does not. Even though you think that it's your refuge, you think that that's the one that makes you feel safer. 
It's not. It's the only reason you think that is because you're not in relationship to God. If you were in relationship, you would not feel that way. Does that make sense? Amen. Amen. Let me just read this again from Second uh, Second Peter. My brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble.